0: Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my good friend Pete Spiliakos in a conversation about Blade Runner, the greatest Ridley Scott movie, a unique mixture of the noir detective genre and the sci-fi horror, and now the subject of a sequel, much debated, unfortunately not seen as much as it should be. It's a really good movie, if not a pleasant experience altogether. Pete, tell me what are your thoughts, how do you grasp Blade Runner?
1: Well, my first thought on Blade Runner was if a friend of mine hadn't given me a Blade Runner DVD for Christmas, I probably never would have seen it. Um, Blade Runner is a much less popular movie than you would think, given how much people know the word Blade Runner. I don't know about Europe, but in American culture, I don't remember Blade Runner ever having been on network television that everybody gets. I don't remember it having been on basic cable, which is the most widely available cable networks. Now, I'm not saying it never ran on those. I'm just saying it didn't run on it very much. So it's a movie that does not have nearly as much public awareness as many others but what struck me watching the movie especially watching it when I was older was how much the movie is about the human soul that's okay a lot of noir movies are about that but how much the movie is about slavery not only do the characters mention this is what it feels like to be a slave but it sets up the New World slave metaphor, in other words, whether it's the Spaniards enslaving Indians or whether it's white English colonists enslaving dark-skinned Africans, it's the same basic, it's the same basic dynamic. You are having slaves from point A to point B to move into colonies. Now, whether these colonies are the Americas or whether these colonies are off-world colonies, it amounts to the same thing. So then, it was struck me as ultimately being about the human soul. It's about what do beings owe each other who have souls. The central conflict seems to be the one between Las Casas and the Spanish authorities. Do these beings have souls? And if so, what do we owe these souls? And you have these powerful entities who are trying to produce rationalizations for why these beings don't have souls and why, therefore, they're ripe for exploitation.
0: Yeah, that's very astute, Pete. And I think that's the most striking thing for an American audience in the movie. The new world, the land of opportunity, is the off-world colonies. That would mean that LA, and by extension, America, is an old world now. And we'll get to that at the later point. The new world, where supposedly there's a real life to be had, is off-world. We don't see it. We just see some replicants, robots, human robots come back from there. It turns out to be hell precisely because of the question of slavery. As you pointed out, this comes into varieties. There's the famous debate you mentioned between Bartolomeo de las Casas and, on the other hand, Juan de Sepulveda and the Spanish authorities. The question of whether the Indians even have a soul and this is much debated during the movie do these replicants have any kind of inside inside of them or is the only thing inside of them stuff that their creators put there that is moving around funny but is not something that's truly an inside that belongs to each and every one of these replicants specifically and uh, harrison ford blade runner the great bounty hunter who's supposed to be great at catching robots actually only kills two people and they're both women both of these deaths are shocking You cannot but feel that persons are being killed, that there is something vulnerable being destroyed there that's more than a machine, a mere piece of matter in motion. That's a way of going through the plot again and again to make you ask yourself, are these real people? Is it okay to kill these people? Are they real people? Now, the fact that the Blade Runner Harrison Ford is a kind of police agent looking for what are quite murderous creatures makes this somewhat bearable. He doesn't kill anybody in cold blood blood, he's not a monster. But it doesn't seem that he starts by understanding that these beings, they have some kind of insight inside of them, something we could reasonably call a soul. And so how do you think about this first slavery question, the question of soul?
1: Harrison Ford does not play a heroic character because he's physically incompetent relative to any of the replicants. But he's also hunting people who only want to live and who ultimately only want to be able to live independent lives. He is in practice a slave catcher. And that's tough to see Han Solo or Indiana Jones being and doing. And that adds a, an element of ambiguity. In the course of the story, the main arc in the story is that Harrison Ford starts as a loader, starts as a disgusted Blade Runner. On one level, he understood that what he was doing was wrong, but he didn't have a mental scheme by which to understand it. And by the end of the movie, he ends up with a replicant who is his new girlfriend and they'll have together how long they have. The story is his moral arc, but I don't know that people wanted a story about a moral arc about a guy who was a slave catcher who killed multiple slaves. And at the end of the movie ran away with one of the slaves. That's a very ambiguous action story that I think a lot of people just didn't like.
0: Yep, and you put it very well, Pete. Can see why people might be reluctant to notice the obvious here. It's really unpleasant. There's a lot of hedging within the plot. Deckard, the Blade Runner, has to be forced into this hunt. He doesn't want to do it. And when his former boss tells him, remember, you're not a cop, you're little people, he says, oh yeah, I got no choice. To some extent, what excuses the ugliness of what goes on is that nobody has any choice in this story. And that's part of what it means for America in the future to turn not into the new world, but the old world. Something happened to America, and it wasn't good. And so much for the first slave question, but as you pointed out, there's also a way to think about these slaves in terms uh, which are more familiar to North America, to whites and blacks in the colonies and in the
1: Union. How do you think about that? Well, what's interesting is that one of the reasons I think people kind of miss slave metaphor is because Rutger Hauer is so damn pale. There's a lot of slave metaphor in there that for some reason doesn't seem to be recognized,
0: but the movie is trying to let you know through dialogue. I remember you told me you listened to the commentary track.
1: And there's one scene where Harrison Ford in his terrible voiceover work says, because he called the replicants skin bags, and he said he would have also referred to blacks using a, a name. I mean, he, this, the, the plot is, is repeatedly trying to tell you that this is a American slavery metaphor as well as a Spanish slavery metaphor, and that this is a character trying to figure out what's going on in this world. But I also wonder if the story is. It's partially about America, because once again, you have an America that's to the extent that people live in a place it's extremely crowded it's extremely hierarchical which is the opposite of what people thought of America's being originally what people thought of only a place of citizen farmers rather than a place where if you're not police you're little people if you're not a corporate science genius you're little people this is an inversion of everything that people think about America but it's also a story about humanity and it's also a story about science to what extent does science free up some people in order to oppress other people to what extent does power give people a license and a set of rationalizations for abusing other people. Because ultimately, the science of humanity in Blade Runner is a pseudoscience. The way that they distinguish human beings from replicants is that replicants have a different set of life experiences so they respond differently to the test. Not wrong, just differently. And this is used as an excuse to treat them as subhuman, to treat them as just matter. Now, once again, there's a lot of historical precedent for this. This is not science fiction. This is human history. But it's also questions we're going to face when it comes to cloning. So we're not actually free of these questions. In fact, we're probably just on the cusp of facing these questions within
0: our own lifetimes. Yeah, the strange thing about our new scientific powers is that they are forcing these questions on us all over again. In the way we're immediately facing them now, it has to do with work in Blade Runner the robots are called replicants and killing them is called retirement because for them life is defined as work being productive workers is being what they are this is the only being that is recognized anything else you gotta kill them this is what Deckard says that these replicants they're nothing but tools now the ones that do their jobs fine it's only when they go bad that I've got a problem with them I deal with them those are your options work or die <laughs> and of course now we're facing the obverse of that question? What if there's no productive work to be done by people because it has been repealed by technological progress? What do you do when people don't have work that seems to them in any way to correspond to their human dignity? Are they human anymore? If you automate their jobs away, do you owe them anything? People who have no economic power, do they have voting rights and should they? So we do see a bunch of these questions already cropping up, and as you pointed out, as technology probes more and more intimately into what makes human beings human, this question will come up again and again. Is being (coughs) human anything but a mind that wants to work its will upon a body of whatever kind? A flesh body, if that's what it takes. Many different flesh bodies, if that's available. Metal bodies. Atomic or molecular bodies of various compositions that are more resilient what is it to be human? Is it to work your will from your mind or are you tied up with your flesh and therefore with mortality in some way? These are big questions in Blade Runner. The movie itself tries to teach you to see people dying as people. How do you know these replicants are people? Well, your experience of that psychologically, dramatically is you see them killed and you suffer each time. It is ugly, it is miserable, it's nothing enjoyable, nothing to which you could respond with indifference. But of course, that's not an argument that says something about how we react because of who we are. Working out the argument for why these replicants are human is actually strangely complicated. You mentioned that there's this weird test that's supposed to figure out how we react emotionally. Now, what that's supposed to say about us is that we're always in danger of abandoning the big question. What is it to be human? Are we human? for a derivative question of can we tell the difference between us and somebody else, because we react this way but other people react another way, maybe they just react slower, and that's justification for exploitation. The weird thing about that test is how much there is talk about animals in it in a movie where you don't see any animals except mechanical animals. The only owl, there's your Hegelian reference, the owl of Minerva does fly at dusk. Absolute wisdom has been achieved at the Tyrrell Corporation. That owl is not real. It's very expensive, you're told, but of course it's not real. There are no real animals here, but a lot of the questions are about animals. When the first replicant is faced with this test, he has to ask, what's a tortoise? Tortoise is a turtle, but different. But he says he's never seen a turtle either. He doesn't know the word tortoise, he knows the word turtle, but he has never seen it. Nobody has seen animals, and it seems like what's at stake here is the class divide between humans and replicants has to do with memories that are essentially a nostalgia about an old world where you had pets. Think how crazy that is for human beings to identify their humanity with their sentimentality about domesticated animals.
1: Well, I think I use the term pseudoscience, but there's also a pseudo-philosophy to it. These are tissue-thin rationalizations, but once again, this is not especially unusually silly. The rationalizations for African-American slavery in America were just as miserable, and you could have found intelligent people spouting them as if they believed it the rationalizations for indian slavery were just as thin and they were just as absurd but i think also uh, what, what did you say about um...
0: the only animals in the movie are artificial because they're supposed to supplant pets pets are domesticated animals for pleasure as opposed to use now in this kind of future apparently necessity ugliness misery has wiped out all animals except that the rich can still have artificial animals but those artificial animals are supposed to correspond to artificial memories to a nostalgia for a past where you had pets. It shows that before you end up with a Blade Runner future, you have to live through the present we are actually living through, where people replace children by pets, where people replace a lot of affection, a lot of natural love and sentiment about nature with pets.
1: That's a good one, and I remember what I was going to say. We were going to talk about what makes somebody human, and I thought one of the movie's arguments is not just that we think that what makes us human, it's that our mortality makes us human. There's the recurring line through the course of the movie, time to die. Now, the first two times that we hear it is before an attempted murder and before an actual murder. The third time that we hear it is a being asserting that it's a being with a soul. He's not killing somebody. He's not a monster. He had lived, and now he is dying. He's just as real, just as real as in soul as anybody else and i think that was his ultimate argument for his own mortality we are thinking beings even though because of our experiences we don't necessarily think exactly like you but we're mortal beings which is one of the reasons why um one of the controversies in the movie is, is Deckard a replicant, and is Deckard not a replicant? I like that it's ambiguous. I like that it isn't settled, because in the context of the movie's argument, it literally doesn't matter whether he's a replicant or not a replicant. It's trivial, relative to the most important questions that the movie is asking.
0: Yeah, that's true. This question of artificiality, the artificial versus the natural, the modern world is artificial, and the question is, what is the character of this artificiality? What do you get when you get an artificial world. The Blade Runner hypothesis is the opening sequence where you see Los Angeles by night, shapeless points of light spread out, and here and there you see tongues of flame, which you do not see in LA, of course. This is an industrial LA, and this is supposed to teach you that this is the world, a darkness, a chaos, the universe we learn about in physics. It is coldly indifferent to you. It has no providence for human beings. And in this cold, indifferent world, where there are just points of light, what we have is fire fire gives us the powers of arts and sciences by which we live and thrive. And this is how we make a new world, an artificial world, as opposed to the world before our arts and sciences. What Blade Runner is trying to tell us shockingly is that when we have achieved this super scientific power, only now have we literally imitated the heavens. LA by night looks like the starry sky above. That's supposed to teach us something about how America, instead of being the new world, became the old world in this Blade Runner future. It happened because of a kind of revelation that came with science. What science and all this new power taught people is that the world is a chaos. There is no providence for the human being. You have to do whatever it takes to make it. And so, after the points of light, after the fires, we see the twin pyramids of the Tyrell corporation. In this world of necessity and harshness there must be hierarchy, and the hierarchy is who wields the powers of fire. And this is a corporation we learn, and that means not one united will and intelligence in a person. Old Man Tyrell is not in fact in control of everything, and a lot of the movie of course is about him learning how little he actually controls. But the corporation can go on without him, there is no sense in the story that once you've got rid of Old Man Tyrell, then it's over. No, the corporation goes on headless, just like the pyramids themselves are twins, not just one, and they lack a top, they're incomplete, they're forever being completed. And in these pyramids you see the owl fly, which recalls the famous saying of Hegel that the owl of Minerva flies in the evening. Only when man has lived out his history and has come to the end, to the evening, to darkness, is he fully wise? Has he achieved full scientific power and full scientific knowledge together? And that's what old man Tyrell stands for. He thinks that he can control everything. He thinks specifically that he can control these replicants. In his conversation with Roy Batty, he explains what is happening to the replicants, their four-year lifespans, as a scientific inevitability. There's no use fighting against it. There's nothing you can do. You do not have any choice. The world is such that it constitutes you in such a way that you have no choice. This is strange for a man who's so proud of his creation, he's so proud of making something that would not have existed without him, and at the same time he thinks that this being he has created can have no choices of its own. Roy Batty reacts of course by killing Tyrell, kissing and killing his maker, and you could say that partly that's our own scientific attitude, we are atheists who want to kill a god so that we can be free to have nobody to answer to. This is what Roy Batty seems to have learned from Tyrell, you have to kill your creator and then you'll be free in some way. He doesn't believe in his creator anymore either, it's a strange way of working out atheism but that's how it works. Tyrell thinks he's some kind of god killer because he has replaced god with scientific control. Roy Batty is also in that sense a god killer. has killed old man Tyrell and then he actually goes almost insane it's uh, it's important that before that he hadn't confronted the possibility of insanity because he had thought there's probably a solution all these robots are coming to earth looking for a practical solution to a practical problem let's get more life out of life let's get more time out of time but it turns out that this attitude where you say there's no choice for human beings all there is is the wisdom to know how scientifically the world works That is what transforms the new world into an old world. It is the ultimate justification for the most horrifying hierarchies you can imagine. It's what it takes to say some will have to exploit others endlessly. Call that life exploitation and the end of it retirement. Old man Tyrell is perfectly comfortable with this, but the way you see his workers, he has these kinds of small geniuses, uh, artists, scientists, who design genetically eyes and all sorts of other things, who are creators in their own rank, and like Tyrell, they have a sense of wonder about the wonderful things they have created. They're not in control types, those people are not on top of the pyramid. They're put upon little people, as the policeman might say. All freedom has been evacuated, except maybe for the few at the top, and this makes the few at the top incredibly callous. Old Man Tyrell has made a robot that at first seems to be a creature of his nostalgia and his human failings in love. Susan is a replicant of his niece. And that's one answer to what do replicants replicate. They replicate us. They replicate those we love and whom we dare not lose. But it turns out that all material has no feelings for this replicant. He uses her and discards her without any care, because she's not really a person, she's not really human, she's not really anything but a kind of machine that's no longer working. And it seems like humanity appears at the margin where this super science that is corrupting or has corrupted America is failing. This robot Susan was ignorant of her robotic created status and seemed to be a satisfactory replicant up till then. Imminently, she must die because her lifespan is expiring. In that narrow gap, Tyrell says she's beginning to suspect she's a replicant and then she finds out and then she has to deal with knowing that. That is the small freedom that human beings have in this movie that is about self-knowledge. Is about when you learn that in some sense you're artificial and you're mortal and you can know that. You can know these two facts, that you're artificial and that you're mortal and you somehow have to deal with it. But only there is there some room for self-knowledge, for knowing what it truly means to be human. It seems like nobody in the movie is asking that. Everybody accepts that there's a test to separate the human from the non-human, and therefore you don't have to ask, what does it mean to be human? Well, you can see something about what it's like to be human in this world. It's miserable. None of these people are happy. Most of this world looks ugly, and the pyramid world seems repellent morally. That's what the world looks like. And it seems like the question of what it means to be human has to be imported from these replicants, from these robots. It's strange to think, but in a sense, it's because we have exported everything to them. These replicants do our work for us because they're much stronger and much more resilient. And they also have to now suffer our mortality for us. We're not strong and resilient enough to face it. They will have to deal with that tragedy, with that excruciating suffering of knowing that you will die. It's a strange thing to think, but these are not tools we have created in this mythical future. They are idols. They're supposed to suffer our fate for us and maybe deliver us from it if at all
1: possible. Well, the replicants are also symbolic of humanity in general. Because have you ever seen a movie from the 1990s called Dark City? Yep. Great movie. It's a great movie, but I also think it's heavily influenced by Blade Runner. But it comes across a lot of the questions from a different angle because the replicants are created to serve as a working class. But one of the questions that Dark City is asking is how much are any of us simply products of our environment? How much of our personality is simply a product of accident? And I think the replicants are bringing that same question from a different angle. And I think Blade Runner probably influenced Dark City in that way. These characters were able to assert that I am not my social circumstances. I am not my class. I'm not a product of science i'm not a product of social hierarchy i'm a human being that means i'm destined to live it means i'm destined to love and it means i'm destined to die and it means i'm destined to do this with other people other and soul beings because that's who we are and that's ultimately the journey of the whole movie that the replicants are simply dramatizing the crisis that all the other characters in the movie are already facing yeah
0: and it seems like you do need a dramatic expression and this agony, because this is not a world where people can talk it out or discover it by investigation. This is a world where, as we see in the second sequence, language is now used for scientific exploitation. There's a kind of detective scientist and a kind of patient worker, and their dialogue is a cross examination. It's an interrogation that is supposed to establish whether one of them is a human being. and of course. If he's a human being, certain things follow from that. But if he's not a human being, other things follow from that. Language is there to question whether you're even human. And in the beginning, this is used by the people who are sure that they're human beings to deny humanity to the other beings. In the end, language for once turns out to be about the self-understanding of a being whose humanity has been denied hitherto. Roy Batty's monologue is supposed to prove that he is human he does have self-understanding. And the meaning of self-understanding in the end, Roy Batti says is, all these memories will disappear. They'll just be like tears in the rain. Now, this is an Indian proverb. The tears of strangers are mostly water. You don't have to care about them. <laughs> so also with him, tears in the rain. What's the difference between the water of tears and the water of rain? It's human misery. It's the fact that it suggests, it implies human experience, which is irreplaceable and unrepeatable. It is the, the one thing that science cannot manufacture. It turns out, that the Tyrell Corporation fails at that, at reliably producing this replicant experience. The replicants are more human than human, the Tyrell Corporation motto, just not in the sense that Tyrell wanted. Tyrell wanted human beings who do not have human experience and therefore no fear of mortality. He has created instead something else, something that ends up being dominated by the experience of mortality. But it has escaped his control. Tyrell thinks he's in control of everything. He is the chief maker in an army of makers who have a corporation to use to make artificial humans. We're all to some extent artificial, well, these are just better than us, they're more human in being fully artificial. And he thinks he's in control of all that, that he has created scientifically something he can hold under control. But it turns out he can't hold it under control. And that's part of the suggestion that in the end these people have a little freedom. They have a little self-understanding. And that means that there's something in them that isn't under control, that is not literally predictable and reproducible. That is the character of human experience, that is the only difference between tears and rain. That is to say, the greatness and misery of being human.
1: And there's also, Roy Batty's experience is also replicated not only in Deckard. Deckard starts the story as being with no agency in particular. Deckard starts out dragooned into this investigation that he wants no part of. Because once again, it's hierarchical. You're police or you're little people. And it ends with him saving Susan. But it's not just Deckard. Deckard is not the only one making choices at the end. His partner, Edward James Almost, I don't know what his character, what his Mm -hmm. name is. At the end of the day, he also made a choice. Which was, he was not going to kill Susan. All these characters choose to stand apart from these structures. They choose to stand apart from necessity as it is technologically or socially constructed in order to do what they believe is right. Because they are in soul beings. Susan is. Deckard is. Edward James almost his character mm-hmm. is. Roy Batty dramatizes the real freedom that all of these characters have. Whereas so many of these characters seem bound by necessity. Well necessity does bound them in ways they can't fully comprehend. But there are also ways in which they are free that they cannot entirely understand but they can partially understand they'll be alive for as long as they're alive and they'll have as much freedom as they can have and not only that in the final scene we don't see any green at the end of any other part of the movie it's when deckard and susan have left los angeles they are going to live their lives with something what they recognize as freedom
0: yep and it takes a long time for decker to understand that these beings too are human but he does. That's the kind of replication that Deckard becomes capable of. He begins to understand that these are real experiences he's witnessing. That these beings are irrepeatable. And that there is something understandable about them. And something mysterious. That with each one something is lost. Ultimately he has to witness this spectacle. Roy Batty and Pris. And the house full of toys of Sebastian. Who makes all sorts of puppets. Because he's very very lonely. He's a gentle soul. He's not an exploitative maker unlike Tyrell he makes for fun not for anything else but he also cannot deal with the world except in terms of toys and it is in this world of toys that Deckard has to face Pris and then Roy Batty who are kind of Barbie and Ken but in a nightmarish version.
1: Yeah it's actually a really interesting scene from when Roy sees Tyrell to the end of when Deckard sees Susan the movie makes a huge tonal shift from film noir to horror movie, Nightmare, because nothing that happened from when Deckard enters the house to when Roy Batty dies makes any kind of physical sense. The way that Daryl Hannah's character attacks Deckard is completely nonsensical. Certain parts of the scene make sense, even if they do have horror movie motifs where she's pretending to be one of the toys and she's made up and then she comes to life. Okay, it's horror movie-ish in style, but it has some sense within the context of the story. But there's one point where she's completely capable of killing him. It's her job to kill him, but she chooses not to and she makes these completely insane gymnastics-related assaults. Well, that only exists to scare the audience, and it exists to heighten Deckard's emotional crisis. These things simply exist to scare him, to make him open to learning. It exists to disorient us so that we are ready to have our perception changed but if you were to apply actual logic her actions make no sense except that they serve a larger storytelling purpose they're supposed to be disorienting because we're about to have the world that we've been seeing thrown off center we've been rooting for Deckard to bring down these evil replicants who are killing everybody but it's about to tell us that he's really been the bad guy all along and we've been sympathizing with the bad guy all along the way it does it is that first you have her launching her attack which makes no sense and then you have Roy Batty hunting him through the house where Roy Batty could kill him at any time and he is simply hunting him in order to maximize how scary and disorienting deckard finds it and how scary and disorienting audience finds it because in fear and terror we are able for one thing removed moved out of our comfort zone and then at the end we are able to identify with roy batty where he basically says this is what it's like to be a slave
0: yep he says this is what it means to live in fear and that makes it seem like both Pris and roy batty had been as you suggest putting on a performance for deckard's sake In a sense, that's true. We know about these characters from the early parts of Act 1 that they all have a timestamp, that they will all die soon. You know, they're machines, they've been made, they're going to be unmade. They've been working, they're not going to work anymore. But you don't know, how are they going to stop when they die, their machine deaths? What is that going to look like? a moment of greatness this is their moment of agony but also of greatest success it is the case that this pleasure model robot acts like an olympic class gymnast There is physical agony, contest, strength, vitality in her movements, and her death is excruciating. That's what it looks like to be mortal. Even if you know that death is coming, the way they react is try to put their powers on display. And it seems they're not killing Deckard because there's no point in killing him. They would die anyway. Roy Batty eventually squares with the fact that he's mortal. He squares with Pris' death first, he wants to close her eyes, he wants to treat her like a human being, like a corpse, not some discarded toy. He wants her to be decent in death. And then he terrorizes Deckard, but ends up saving his life that's when he delivers his monologue because it seems like now he's sure that he can get this guy's attention this guy can now tell from what he has seen these are beings that prize their individuality in some intelligent way they have faced up to something he also has to face up to mortality they know they're gonna die it constitutes who they are to some extent he's reduced to being a witness but that also is something that he had never been able to do before hunting replicants all his life and this had never occurred to him before seeing the splendid powers of these beings and seeing that one of them spares and saves his life supposed to show that they are able to act.
1: Also, that Deckard has been on the other side of it. He's able to recognize that he's being used by the police and by the Terrell Corporation as a tool. And he's able to understand that him and the replicant are, to that extent, in the same situation. Which is why the ambiguity of whether Deckard is a replicant is both important and unimportant. He'd obviously never thought about whether he was a replicant. But at the same time, he was being used as a tool and he knew it and he resented being used at the end of the day, he's able to identify with Roy Batty because they were in conflict because they were both being used as tools, except that one of them was rebelling against it and the other one wasn't. Yep.
0: The fact that, as you pointed out again and again, in order to understand that you're human, to some extent you have to oppose the institutions order, society around you. You have to find something within you that tells you this is not right. Don't do that you have to find that naysaying voice inside of you. It's very hard to replicate that, to find it in others. It is a deeply painful and strange experience for everyone. It's very hard to relate, to see it in anybody else. To begin with, Taker doesn't think that these other people who don't want to do such and such that they're just like him. He doesn't think that his contempt and repulsion right? Tyrell or his police officer superiors is the same as Susan's for example. In fact he starts by identifying with the position of Tyrell. It's Tyrell that discards Susan as a mere machine who just found out she's a machine and Deckard treats her the same way what he does is he tells her about her childhood memories. He shows that she's not a real person because she doesn't have real memories. They're the memories of this girl, Tyrell's niece but that's not the point. The point is to prove that he can violate her inner most he asks her have you ever told this to anyone no they're secrets but i know your secrets i can see inside of you there's nothing there he identifies with tyrell at that point the only difference is that he feels bad about it and before that he asked tyrell something that's important how can it not know what it is from the point of view of decker the problem is how is the replicants not know that they're nothing that there's nothing inside of them how can you create for them the illusion of being human? And he moves from that to trying to learn that they are human in some strange way. That there is an inside inside of them that he cannot predict or violate. That the man
1: with well, more also, knowledge
0: cannot control and predict, usurp the humanity of the other ones who have less knowledge.
1: Well, he's also Descartes, which could be also Descartes. It's a pun that he recognizes that <laughs> That's by good.
0: And so you see all these old world problems about rational scientific control of life that threaten to corrupt any recognition of humanity that might be considered the American proposition.
1: Well, it's also futuristic, but it's also historical. There's also the sense that whether it's the United States or whether it's Mexico or whether it's Brazil, these problems have been replicated within the American, broadly speaking, as in the Western Hemisphere experience from the very beginning, where you have humans treating other insoled beings as products, as workers, rather than as fully insoled human beings. And it's taken different forms in different societies. and it, it looked and worked differently in Haiti than it did in Mexico, than it did in Brazil, than it did in the United States. But all of these post societies face these questions not simply a future-oriented scientific question it's a human oriented question because the style of the rationalization changes the the temptation really does not change It's not superficially futuristic. I think it's a well-realized science fictional world. They read newspapers a little bit more than we do, but otherwise the world mostly makes sense in its own terms. But at the same time, the reason why it works as noir, this throwback style, is because noir is ultimately not about pavements, and it's not about buildings, and it's not even about 1930s Los Angeles. It's about the darkness of the human heart and somebody, usually an outsider, confronting it and learning about it and either overcoming it or not overcoming it, but also learning something about the world and about humanity and himself. And that's ultimately why it works as a noir stuff. Yeah,
0: and Harrison Ford is much underrated. Maybe people think of him too much as Han Solo or Indy Jones. This role shows you that he could have been the Bogart of the 80s. He is a good noir character. He is manly in the sense of take charge, getting stuff done pretty fearless and aloof. He hates his superiors and institutions that might corrupt his integrity. It seems like these qualities are required for somebody to stand up for himself, to stand against institutions that debase him, and to maybe understand that same thing in other people. If you stand for something, you might understand what other people stand for too. And there may be a common standpoint that understands human dignity from the experience of indignation, of not wanting to put up with people ruining your integrity.
1: And also another theme of the noir character is the noir character is generally not omniscient or omnipotent. They're not just a human scale. They're also kind of scuffed up, which is they're vulnerable, which I think is kind of the problem that some people have with the movie. One of the reasons they are uncomfortable is that Indy and Han Solo looks much more confused and much more physically and emotionally weak and much more morally compromised than what they're used to. To some extent, he's a perfectly normal noir character. Sam Spade is morally compromised. He's just a little less morally compromised than all the other people around him. Philip Marlowe has got great integrity, but he's constantly getting beaten up by everybody he runs across. So he fits pretty snugly within the tradition of the great noir detectives in that way. But I don't think people really wanted to see Harrison Ford in those terms. But also, once again, the movie exercises a reversal that we don't usually see in those noir movies, where at the end of the movie, it's not unusual to have a noir protagonist figure out that he's working for the bad guys. That does happen. But usually he doesn't kill victims the way that Deckard does in the course of the movie. Deckard is more morally compromised because over the course of the movie, we see him killing people that by the end of the movie we wish had been killed. And that he lends them a level of ambiguity and it makes a story emotionally unsatisfying as an adventure story in ways that people I'm not sure expected. Because when they hear Blade Runner, I think what a lot of people thought is something along the lines, Oh man, it's it's gonna be Harrison Ford and he's a Kane Solo and he's a he was Indiana Jones and that's gonna be Blade Runner. I don't know what that is, but it really sounds cool. And it really isn't cool. You have a character with a glorified slave catcher and a glorified slave killer and it comes to that by the end of the movie and it's like, wait a minute, this is this is
0: not what I signed up for. Yep, maybe it's why it's so hard to sell the noir, but of course it's very important morally. A couple of weeks back I recorded a podcast with James Pulos about Twin Peaks because we both love David Lynch as a moralist. And he has a detective hero that also turns out to be way more morally compromised than it seems in Twin Peaks. And that's also about what learning that somebody else is innocent might mean. Deckard is such a weirdo, he really does try to ruin, without even caring, Susan's innocence because he doesn't think she's a human being. Even as a replicant, she's a replicant of somebody's niece. How vulnerable and childish does that sound? Who'd treat that with this kind of contempt? It is deeply disturbing to see how vulnerable innocence is maybe it does take one of these guys who's been beaten up by life, but who hasn't given up on his integrity, to try to stand up for that. And he's fairly well redeemed by movie, and he seems not crippled by his past, and he can deal with it, and he can deal with humanity in a way he hadn't been able in the beginning. You start with him at the bottom, literally at the bottom of the pile, because it's part of his self-contempt, he thinks it belongs there.
1: We don't really find out what he's doing before he's recruited to work for the police. He's just kind of hanging around eating noodles. Yeah, he seems th- to be a bum now. One of the things that struck me is how much darker Blade Runner is tonally than even other noir movies. Like, compare it to L.A. Confidential, which is a very dark, bitter, cynical, paranoid noir movie. And all of the course of that movie, you have Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce, who are the eventual heroes. They beat people up and they kill them. And sometimes they kill them for reasons other than the ones that they think that they're killing them. But everybody that they kill or they beat up has it coming. Now, Russell Crowe's character has a moral arc, and he's a better character at the end, but all of the movie, when he's beating people up, whether they're wife beaters or whether they're organized criminals, they have it coming guy pierce kills a bunch of people they're not the actual murderers that he thinks they are but they're rapists you can rationalize it as they have it coming whereas blade runner tells you specifically that he is killing people who do not have it coming like when he kills the stripper the shot is laid out in such a way that she's going through the windows when she's being shot yeah so that empathy is with her yes yeah. and we both use the term robot in the context of this movie but they're not robots they're really flesh and blood and whatever differences they have are actually very subtle there are some ways in which they're stronger there's some mysterious chemical process by which they die after four years and we don't but for all practical intents and purposes they're human because an x-ray would not reveal them as being less than human even in l.a confidential when they kill somebody they don't do it in such a way that we sympathize with guy pierce's victims or russell crowe's victims we still sympathize with those characters even at the end of the movie even when it turns out that russell crowe has been beating people up in order to advance an organized crime scheme the people he beat up had it coming
0: that's all true. True, I'd say that there is something very unbalanced in the storytelling here. Now the plot is introduced such that the police officer tells you these people have murdered dozens of people. You see Leon to begin with murder somebody, they're not innocents, these people are murderers, all of them. But it is true that aside from those elements of plot, mostly the scenes work on your emotions to side with the victims. You fully experience, in as much as movie can do that, the agony of their mortality. You're right about this. The push in Blade Runner, unlike Noir, is so far towards mortality, not leaving it at a matter of justice and integrity, but thinking about integrity in terms of your mortality, your existential situation, facing death, that it makes everything much darker, and that's really the only sci-fi element introduced. It is possible that the new world will end up leaving the fantasies of the old world and that science takes over life and takes away our humanity in the name of power. There's something strange that you can also think about in terms of the musical score. The first time you see a car fly, the Vangelis score is about wonder. Man. Also, the cinematography and the design when they show you pyramids, when they show you all sorts of strange modernistic interiors, there's something wondrous about them. It's fascinating. But all of it tends in this direction. What if scientific power means it's going to take our humanity away and that we will cling to the last illusions of it just for the sake of exploiting somebody else?
1: And also in the story, what's beautiful isn't visibly human, and what's visibly human isn't beautiful. The scenes are either crowded and dirty, or they're beautiful and they're austere and they're simply artificial. Yep. And one of the themes of the sequel, which we'll talk about next time, is can our humanity exist in the context of technological change? To what extent are we going to be able to be personal beings, as opposed to simply atoms that are shuffled around, whether by physics or by other powerful forces? or whether we're entirely on the way of repealing our humanity, whether we're replicants or whether we're not replicants. Yes.
0: Well, Pete, this conversation has been great, and I've never heard people talk about the slavery question like you did, so thanks a lot for joining me and and bringing all this to the podcast. Let's wrap it here, and we'll do a podcast on Blade Runner 2049.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Okay, take care.